Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. Sid and Nancy. They were the Romeo and Juliet of punk rock. Star-crossed lovers, each despised and hated by the other's friends and family. Bound together by fate and passion into a forlorn and doomed romance that would see them both dead in the prime of their youth. Their relationship is the stuff of legend, of films, books, songs, and poems, a tumultuous and sometimes violent affair, riddled with drugs and fighting, but an affair of deep love and unbridled passion nonetheless that would end in murder and possible suicide. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you the story of punk rock's most infamous couple, Sid and Nancy, part one, The Star-Crossed Lovers. Let's begin. Chapter one, A Boy Named Simon. The world's most notorious punk rocker, Sid Vicious, was born Simon John on May 10th, 1957, in the metropolitan borough of Lewisham, England. His mother, Anne Jeanette MacDonald, was 25 years old. She'd been previously married and divorced, and had dropped out of high school to join the Air Force, all very wild for straight 1950s England. While serving in the Air Force, she met George Ritchie, who was also serving at the time. The two were smitten, and soon Anne was pregnant. Marriage was discussed, but Anne had been through that before, and being a rebel, didn't want to go that route again. Also being a rebel, she soon left the Air Force, as did George, who became a publisher's rep in London. George and Anne lived in a semi-basement flat in southeast London when their baby was born in 1957. Though they struggled financially, Anne often having to rely on handouts from her family, they appeared a happy young couple. But they were restless and wild at heart and decided to pack it all in and move to the Mediterranean island of Ibiza, a sun-drenched paradise off the southeastern coast of Spain. Someplace I myself would love to retire to, one of my favorite areas in the entire world. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like an absolute dream. I know my sister has vacationed there several times and adores it. Really? Yeah, we were, mm -hmm. we were looking at taking a vacation there this year, actually. Yeah, it lo looks amazing. You should do it. Well, Anne and her now two-year-old son, Simon, or as she would affectionately call him to his dying day, Syme, headed off to the sunny Mediterranean Sea to await George, who stayed behind to get their affairs in order. George had promised to send them money as soon as they arrived, which he failed to do and soon stopped all communication, never arriving there as promised, completely abandoning his two-year-old son and his mother. But the island had attracted other bohemian souls who offered refuge, and Anne made her way selling joints on the beach. They were over a thousand miles away from dreary old England, in a tropical paradise of palm trees and sugar sand beaches, a beatneck mom and her cute little toddler, whom she delighted in teaching Spanish curse words. But as little Simon approached school age, Anne began to feel guilty. They'd had their fun, but Simon needed to be back in his own country where he could get proper schooling. So the two headed back to London and moved in with Anne's mother. After a short time, Anne found a one-bedroom flat in Balham, South London. Anne loved jazz music, the music of beatniks and found a job working at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in Soho. Little Simon would stay home with their landlady, who graciously babysat, entertaining Little Simon by playing him Anne's modern jazz record collection. But like many wild beatniks who loved jazz music, Anne fell into drugs. At first it was just pills, the occasional pep pill to get her going, then a downer to sleep at night, but as she became to depend more and more on pharmaceuticals, she began to go out less and less, instead staying in and getting high to comfort her troubled spirit. They moved into a flat above 178 Drury Land, a place notorious 
for drugs, and Anne was soon using heroin. As she herself says, I knew what I was doing was foolish, especially with a child in tow. But there comes a point when it's just you. No one else matters. In prison, some inmates call heroin the escape plan because it takes you somewhere else. It brings down the walls. On September 3rd, 1962, Little Simon started his first day of school. At just five years old, he walked there alone, crossing over both Drury Lane and Charing Cross Road, which, when discovered, alarmed school officials. An officer was sent to speak to Anne. He found her passed out on the sofa, a bottle of scotch at her feet, and a syringe on the coffee table. But Anne was able to find love again, this time with an intellectual named Christopher Beverly. After a whirlwind romance, the two married in February 1965. The wedding pictures show a beaming Anne and bespectacled Christopher, little Simon standing impish in front of them, his front door key hanging on his neck from a piece of twine, ever the latchkey child. A decade later, the latchkey around his neck would famously be replaced with a chain and padlock. Anne was happy and in love. Plans were made for Christopher to adopt seven-year-old Simon, and his name was changed to Beverly, a surname he'd keep until his dying day. But tragically, just six months later, Christopher died of cancer. Anne was obviously devastated. She'd later say, It destroyed me. The whole thing took me years to finally get over. I thought I'd actually found a way out, but as with all things, it simply wasn't to be. Anne and Simon moved to Kent, and Anne got a job as a bar manager. And little Simon, now Simon Beverly, was fatherless yet again. Simon was often bullied. The kids called him garlic breath because of the heavily garlicked food Anne cooked, something she'd picked up during her time in the Mediterranean. And when he had to, Simon used his fists to fight back. But he also loved to read and devoured books. His favorites being the horror stories of Edgar Allan Poe. He also loved history and would regale his mother with famous historical accounts. And so went life for this little boy named Simon. Chapter 2. A Little Girl Named Nancy Nancy Laura Spungen was born February 27th, 1958, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Though her parents were married, Nancy was an unplanned pregnancy. Her mother, Deborah, was only 20 years old and a student at the University of Pennsylvania. Her husband, Frank, in the Army Reserves, stationed at Fort Knox, Kentucky. They wanted children, but had planned on waiting at least five years. Frank wasn't even working, was still in the Army. Their plan was to move to New York City after Anne graduated college, where Frank would work as an accountant and Deborah could pursue a career in foreign trade. They wanted to travel to Europe, had a whole life planned, but Deborah getting pregnant changed all of that. Deborah was listening to a political science lecture when her water broke, five weeks early. It was the old days. Husbands weren't allowed in the birthing room, and Deborah was sedated into unconsciousness. She slept through the entire birth. It was a complicated and nearly fatal birth. Nancy had been born cyanotic. Her umbilical cord had been wrapped around her neck, strangling her, and she was blue. They'd had to give her a heart stimulant to bring her back to life. Afterwards, she went jaundiced from an ABO incompatibility. A pediatric hematologist was called in. They had to completely replace every drop of her blood with a long series of blood transfusions. From the very moment Nancy was born, she'd had needles shoved into her. Nancy was an incredibly feisty infant, and in order to do the blood transfusions, she'd had to be tied down, which the doctors actually saw as a good sign, since she was a fighter with a strong will to live. Deborah claimed that Nancy was a problem child and bad seed from the minute they took her home. Jesus, that's harsh. It's harsh. <laughs> she, she'd cry for no reason, lash out with her little fists. When Anne was trying to write her senior thesis for college, Nancy would just wail and wail, making it impossible for her to work. She describes her as a demon child. Now, <clears throat> we're getting all this from the book 
And I Don't Want to Live This Life, written by Nancy's mother, Deborah Spungen. In the book, Deborah tries to portray herself as a pitying, devoted mother whose life was made hell by this terrible child. But if you read between the lines, she comes off as, and I'm just going to say it, a total bitch. I mean, even before Nancy is born, Deborah is complaining about how getting pregnant ruined her life, her dreams of moving to New York and pursuing a career, of going to Europe. And she continues to blame Nancy for everything. And I mean everything and anything bad that ever happens in her life. Deborah says Nancy's constant crying and screaming as a baby made her life an utter hell. So after going to pediatrician after pediatrician, she finally found one who prescribed the infant phenobarbital to sedate her. Nancy was just three months old and on a heavy, heavy tranquilizer. Despite being heavily sedated, Nancy was incredibly bright and articulate. And by the time of her first birthday, she was already beginning to talk. Nancy loved to crawl about and explore, which irritated Deborah. When she'd meet up with the other mothers at the park, their babies would lay peacefully in their strollers, while Nancy, quote, crawled around like a demon. Dude, she's a one-year-old child. I remember being so utterly delighted when my children started crawling everywhere and encouraging them to do so. Deborah, however, describes her daughter as a demon for doing this. Deborah even went to the pediatrician complaining about how Nancy constantly wanted to crawl around. The doctor telling her, well, she's a very curious little girl. I'll grant you that. Very active, but not abnormally so. But the doctor agreed to increase her phenobarbital dosage. More phenobarbital because the baby wants to crawl too much. Mysteriously, though, Deborah claims Nancy would always be good for Frank. Like she had it out for Deborah from the moment she was born, and even as an infant was plotting against her. She says of her baby daughter that she, quote, gave her the creeps. So what does she do after being so burdened by motherhood? She goes and has another child, another daughter named Susan. Deborah claims Nancy was callous and selfish and ignored her baby sister and would have nothing to do with her. Nancy was 18 months old when she was described like this in Deborah's book. Deborah describes Nancy as having tantrums for mundane things, such as when a banana broke or she accidentally drew outside the lines in her coloring book, followed by periods of staring into space as if in a trance. Yeah, it, it sounds like a toddler whacked out of her brain on phenobarbitrol to me, honestly. Yeah, like most of the behaviors are completely normal and then the staring off into space can totally, yeah, the phenobarbital, shocker. Ugh. Nancy was two years old at this point. One day, Deborah says Nancy threatened to take scissors and cut up all of Deborah's clothes, saying, she scared the absolute hell out of me. Deborah was so horrified by this two-year-old threatening to slice up her clothes that she, quote, grabbed her by the arms and shook her. I clamped my hand over her mouth. She bit me, so I smacked her hard. It had no effect. Just to reiterate, we're talking about a two-year-old child being jerked, shaken, and slapped. And this is from the right from the mother's own mouth in her best-selling memoir. When Deborah went to the pediatrician and reported the incident to him, he again raised her phenobarbital level. Soon, Nancy began having horrible nightmares that she was being attacked by a rabbit, sometimes insisting she'd been bitten during the night and making Anne bandage her. Deborah was growing increasingly alarmed by her terrible demon child toddler. But Frank told her, you're magnifying it. She's not that bad. To which Deborah replied, she is that bad. Then Deborah got pregnant again and had another child. A little boy this time named David, whom Deborah says Nancy adored, calling him simply the boy. But Deborah continued to haul Nancy off to doctors and psychiatrists. She was given an IQ test and scored a 134. The doctor said she had the functioning IQ of a seven-year-old. She was only five. The doctor told her she was probably just frustrated at not being able to perform to the high standards her intelligence set for herself. It's also probably 
frustrating trying to perform at a high level when you're on that much phenobarbital. Nancy started first grade and within six weeks was moved to a special class for intellectually gifted students. By the end of the second grade, she was doing fourth and fifth grade level work. Yeah, imagine if she wasn't on phenobarbital. (laughs) Crazy, crazy thought there. (laughs) She skipped third grade and was now in fourth grade with children two years older than herself. But Nancy continued to have terrible temper tantrums, and Deborah says she bullied David and Susie. Often this would result in a spanking. As Deborah says, quote, It was always our own frustration that drove us to spank Nancy, since it had no impact on her except to make her angrier. Anne claims Nancy caused a hardship on the marriage, Frank spending more and more time away from the home. So Anne had an affair with a wealthy playboy. She says she wished she could deny it, but quote, It happened, and it happened as a consequence of Nancy. Yeah, yep. She blames her seven-year-old daughter for her own infidelity. It's insane she wrote this shit. Blaming her child for her own moral failings. Here's more about this affair. It was an escape, a delicious escape from Nancy. From the very first time, I was doing something that took my mind away from her. I deserved this. Chapter 3. A Boy Named John In July 1971, Anne and Simon moved again, this time to downtown London. Tired of the name Simon, which he found artsy-fartsy and looking for a tough, simple name that reverberated with the cold streets of London, Simon Beverly now started calling himself John. He'd go through many name changes throughout his life, with each one denoting a whole new persona. By 1973, the now John Beverly was obsessed with David Bowie, in particular the weirdness of Ziggy Stardust. He dyed the front of his hair fire engine red and styled it with copious amounts of Vaseline he would harden by sticking his head in a warm oven. Old school. In September, he started at the Hackney College of Further Education, and it was here that history would be made when he met fellow student John Lydon. John Lydon was of Irish descent, with cascading red hair down to his shoulders. He'd had spinal meningitis as a child, had gone into a coma, and woke up with complete amnesia, remembering nothing. His mother had to reteach him how to read. It also caused him to have a stooped, almost hunchback gait, and wild, searching eyes. He was shy, highly intelligent, but had a brooding demeanor and an insolent and angry worldview, seeing Britain's class structure as offering poor children like himself no prospects. He says, I was very quiet at school up until about 14 or 15 when I decided I had enough. I knew we were being fobbed off and basically given a shoddy third-rate version of reality. See, you wouldn't be capable of questioning your future because you didn't have one. And I'm slipping into Australian there. (laughs) Lydon tells of his budding friendship with John Beverly like this. We got on all right, because he stood out from the crowd, you know? Couldn't fit in. Just couldn't fit in. Like the rest of us. Like all my friends, really. It's tough being an individual in a society that seems to frown upon such activity. John Beverly's rebelliousness and anti-authoritarianism were beginning to truly manifest in those years. Besides the crazy David Bowie look, he was arrested for assaulting two police officers and smashing through a glass door at the police station. But the charges were eventually dropped. The newspaper ran a headline asking, Was Hackney student drugged at party? And Anne cut out the article and saved it. (laughs) Yes, it's kind of a weird thing to have as a keepsake. But, well, John Beverly devoted himself to art at this time, producing some actually wonderful work, which you can find online. Much of it very obviously uh, Salvador Dali influence. But the structure of school life proved difficult to his rebellious nature. And he soon dropped out. His friend John Lydon had meanwhile started attending Kingsway College. While never enrolling or becoming a student at Kingsway College, John Beverly started hanging out there with his best friend John Lydon, and he garnered a new look, now dressing entirely in black, 
spiking his short hair and wearing a black leather bracelet with metal studs in it, earning him a new name, Spiky John. New name, new look, new persona. But it's fair to say that he invented this punk rock look we still see to this day, way back in 1974. Chapter 4. Hippie Nancy. When Nancy was nine years old, she discovered the hippie musical, Hair. It's an amazing soundtrack, incredible songs, but not necessarily made for children, as it's about drugs, free love, and the injustices of the Vietnam War. Nancy played Hair on the stereo over and over and over, until the album was worn out and they had to buy her another one. Then she moved on to the Beatles, devouring them, becoming obsessed with the White Album. Then she was on to the Doors, the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, and Led Zeppelin. She grew her hair to her waist, wore peasant blouses and blue jeans, looking like a, quote, pint-sized hippie. She started reading Rolling Stone magazine, ostensibly because it dealt with music, but became obsessed with social justice issues. Moving into novels by Kurt Vonnegut, Carlos Castaneda, Richard Brodigan, and that old hippie rascal and leader of the merry pranksters, Ken Kesey. She began to grow an interest in the anti-war movement and every Sunday read the New York Times. When she discovered that Saran Wrap was made by Dow Chemical, who also produced Napalm, she demanded that her mother not use it. When Deborah refused, Nancy called her an establishment pig and then made signs saying, we protest mommy, and picketed the front of their house with her siblings, chanting, down with Dow. When one of her cousins was drafted for the Vietnam War, she grew incredibly concerned and plotted to save him and move him to Canada. She was nine years old. Chapter 5, Spiky John. Spiky John, like his mother, fell into drug use. He hung out with a dealer named Mandy Pete, so named because of his unlimited supply of the barbiturate Mandrax. But more than anything, Spiky John loved speed. Since his mother was shooting up heroin and had syringes lying around, he naturally started shooting his methamphetamine. Friends from that time all remember coming over to Anne's flat to see mother and son sitting on the sofa side by side shooting up drugs together. Spiky John and John Lydon formed a gang of sorts called the Four Johns, all of them, obviously, named John. There was Spiky John, John Lydon, John Wardle, and John Gray. In order to differentiate themselves, they started giving each other nicknames. John Wardle became Ja Wobble because of how Spiky John would slur his name, especially when drunk. John Lydon, he had this pet hamster called Sid, He'd named it after former Pink Floyd singer Sid Barrett. Lydon began calling Spiky John Sid. He was like teasing him, kind of calling him a hippie of sorts, especially since he loved to smoke pot and listen to jazz fusion like Weather Report Suite. Spiky John hated the name, so of course, the incredibly obnoxious John Lydon began calling him it more and more until it eventually stuck. As Spiky John himself said, I hate the name Sid. It's real vile and poxy, but they just wouldn't stop. The hamster was a feisty creature that would bite. And because of the Lou Reed song they all adored, Vicious. Great, great song, by the way. Simon John Beverly was anointed Sid Vicious. New name, new persona, and one that he would go to great lengths to live up to. Chapter 6. Bad Nancy. At 10 years old, Nancy was still having terrible tantrums and crying fits. Deborah took her to a psychiatrist. He described her as a, quote, somewhat big girl for her age who walks awkwardly and speaks in a soft, hoarse voice, end quote. He gave her an IQ test. She received a score of 135, ticking up one from the last time she was given the test. The report stated, Nancy perceives interpersonal interactions negatively. She views her parents as ignoring and rejecting her. Nancy feels highly insecure about her inability to do things on her own. She sees herself as small and helpless. 
She reacts to her unmet dependency needs with angry feelings, which are anxiety arousing. The family environment seems to be one in which hollering and physical punishment are common, which provide both a model and instigation for aggressive behavior. The doctor told Deborah she and her husband needed to work on their relationship in order to help Nancy. Deborah, who in the book admits to both beating Nancy and cheating on her husband, was indignant, shocked, and angry. But in the end, she did begin marriage therapy. When Nancy was given the drug Atarax for a respiratory infection, it apparently had a bad effect when mixed with the high levels of phenobarbital, and her mother found her beating her head against the wall, pulling out clumps of hair. Deborah says, She was possessed, demonic. So Deborah grabbed her by the shoulders and wrestled her down to the bed. Nancy went crazy, smashing things, then just as suddenly calmed down and asked to watch cartoons on the television. She was taken to yet another doctor, who thought she appeared fine. But when he left her alone, she locked the door behind him and laughed hysterically as he tried to get back in, saying, I'm smarter than you. I'm smarter than all of you stupid motherfuckers. Nancy began to use profanity in earnest after this incident. Deborah would say to her, Nancy, I've warned you about your language. I won't tolerate it. To which Nancy would reply, Who gives a fuck what you like, you stupid bitch? At one point, they took away her precious record player as punishment for calling her little sister a fucking brat. Nancy proclaimed she was running away from home and ran out the door. Her father chased her to a field and violently grabbed her by the arm, pulling it out of the socket, and she had to be driven to the emergency room. She was 10 years old. At 11, the night terrors were still with Nancy, only they'd changed from rabbits to sharks. She would awake screaming that sharks were trying to get her and eat her up. Her fits grew worse and increasingly more violent. She refused to go to school and began to threaten suicide, saying she just wanted to die. She was prescribed Thorazine, which put her in a catatonic state. Deborah decided to have her committed to an insane asylum. When Deborah visited her there, she described it like this. The room was dark and dingy. One woman was sitting on a bench, staring straight ahead. Several sat there shouting to themselves. One woman was standing and urinating on the floor. Another lay down on the floor, mumbling. It was like something out of the Middle Ages. In the midst of all this stood our 11-year-old child. Deborah and Frank agreed this wasn't what they wanted and had her discharged. But it took days for the discharge paper to go through, during which little Nancy lived in this literal hell. Once discharged and back at home, they kept her on Thorazine and worked to find another place to put her. They found a place called Barton, a boarding school in Connecticut specializing in troubled teens. The school was situated in a large mansion with expansive grounds. It was very liberal and tolerant, didn't believe in using drugs or corporal punishment. Nancy was taken off the phenobarbital and Thorazine and did quite well there, quickly fitting in. She excelled academically, tutored the other students, and was given a paying job as a dishwasher. After a year, the school said she was an exemplary case and would probably be able to return home and finish high school there. But the next year, a new headmaster was put in charge of the school, and Nancy was reassigned to a different unit. The population of troubled teens was doubled as well, in an effort to be more profitable. Without the kind and liberal former headmaster, and then in a crowded setting, Nancy began to act out. She began to run away and was eventually transferred to another school for troubled youth, the Avon School. The Avon School was for teens between 14 and 18, though Nancy was only 13. Her high academic scores enabled her to enter. The teachers and counselors at Avon found an unregimented and permissive atmosphere to be best. The students were allowed to smoke cigarettes, go around barefoot, braless, and in torn shorts and patched jeans, blaring rock music all day. Obviously, Nancy fit right in here. She started smoking cigarettes and soon even had herself a boyfriend. 
a musician named Jeff with long hair and a scraggly mustache. Nancy adored music and it was the one thing that truly put her at peace and ease. And for the rest of her short life, she'd be obsessed with having a musician boyfriend. Nancy got herself a sewing needle and some India ink and tattooed Jeff's name on her chest. He got her pregnant, and she attempted to give herself an abortion with a wire coat hanger. She was found by a school counselor hemorrhaging and was rushed to the hospital. She had perforated her uterus. She started taking LSD. At one point, a letter was discovered that Nancy had written. Dear Jeff, by the time you get this, we'll be on windowpane acid and fucking our brains out. Love, Nancy. She was only 14 years old. What what kind of fucking school is this, man? But the teenage love affair was not meant to last as Jeff left the school. It's unclear if Jeff was kicked out, his parents pulled him out or what, but the two never saw each other again. The school announced that they were ready to let Nancy graduate at just 15. She was academically ready to move on. But Deborah and Frank insisted she be kept there for another year. When Nancy heard this news, that the school was ready to discharge her, but her parents insisted she stay, she took a razor blade and slashed her right arm. She was found sitting on the edge of her bed, staring at the pooling blood. A surgeon had to put six stitches on the inside of her arm and 15 on the outside. Doctors said she'd only been minutes from death. Mm. Chapter 7. Sid Vicious. In the autumn of 1975... Sid Vicious moved to an infamous tenement house called New Court. So dingy, it was seen by many as basically a squat. John Lydon ended up moving there as well after getting kicked out of his house. Lydon's father had demanded he cut his long hair. So Lydon grabbed a pair of scissors and hacked it all off, then dyed the spiky mess green, further infuriating his father, who then gave him the boot. John's crazy hair attracted attention, and he added to it by wearing a Pink Floyd shirt, a beloved band at the time, and scrawling, I hate, above the band's name. Sid, ever the scene star, had been hanging out at a wild shop on trendy King's Road called Sex. It had originally been entitled Let It Rock, and had sold 50s-style clothes to teddy boys, these English greasers obsessed with 50s culture, but the shop had recently transitioned into selling bondage gear, rubber clothing, and offensive shirts with images like two cowboys touching their penises together. Oh, I've always wanted one of those shirts, man. They're pretty cool. <laughs> Sid loved the place and told his buddy John Lydon he had to check it out. And John did. Headed there to buy himself a pair of brothel creeper shoes. I'm wearing a pair of brothel creepers right now. Love those shoes. But as fate would have it, he just happened to walk in while the store owner, Malcolm McLaren, was looking for singers for a band he was managing. Malcolm had briefly and disastrously managed the band The New York Dolls and was eager to jump on the bandwagon of this new music like the Ramones and Iggy Pop that was making waves. Music that was being described as punk rock, as Malcolm himself says. I was an extreme Svengali in those days. People for me were like puppets. You color them up, you put them all together, and you make them all in that format and you give them a title. That's it. That's the way it goes. Malcolm's girlfriend, Vivian Westwood, who designed much of the clothing in the weird store, had actually recommended Sid to him as a singer. But she was still calling him by the name John. So when the green-haired Lydon came strolling in, calling him himself John, Malcolm had mistaken him for Sid. It was an act of fate that would change the face of music, culture, and fashion forever. Malcolm told John Lydon that he'd give him a free pair of creepers if he auditioned. As Malcolm describes the encounter, Johnny wandered into the shop one evening to buy a pair of brothel creepers and black suede. He had green hair and very bad teeth. He was wearing an old secondhand tuxedo. He was immediately press-ganged into auditioning singing Alice Cooper's 18 with the jukebox. He gave an impression of being in pain and of needing to hide that pain. He was angry, and the anger was clearly masking a shyness that made him appear vulnerable, and in some ways, 
cool. It was very seductive. The sound he brought to the group wasn't melodic. His style didn't borrow from the blues or from soul or from any of the conventional roots of rock and roll. He created anthems of despair, loud, relentless, and unforgiving. When guitarist Steve Jones got a load of John Lydon's green hair and rotten teeth, he deemed him a new name, Johnny Rotten, a name that is stuck to this day. And so the Sex Pistols were born. The rest of the band, Steve Jones on guitar, Glenn Matlock on bass, and Paul Cook on drums, were old friends, having grown up together in working-class West London. They were tough, poor street kids with bad reputations. In particular, guitarist Steve. Steve's father had abandoned the family when he was just two years old, and Steve grew up in a small basement with his mother and stepfather, sleeping on the foot of their bed. He'd watched them steal from the supermarket to feed themselves, and became a thief himself. All of the band's equipment was stolen. The amps were from the Rolling Stones, his guitar stolen out of the back of Bob Marley's truck, and the microphone taken right from the stage after David Bowie's last concert as Ziggy Stardust. It's so wild. Hey, horror movie lovers. We want to let you know about an upcoming film called I'll Be Glad When You're Dead. An homage to 80 slashers movies. They got an Indiegogo campaign giving away all kinds of fun swag. So give them some support and love. There's a link in the show notes. That's I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, the Indiegogo campaign. Chapter 8. College, Nancy. Nancy, knowing this would be her final year of school, began applying to colleges. She scored a 1030 on her SATs and received a scholarship to the University of Colorado, where she had decided to study journalism. She was ecstatic, saying, I don't have to be with sickies anymore. Nancy moved into a dorm in Boulder, Colorado, and immediately fell into a bad crowd and fell into drugs. When someone asked if they could store stolen skis in her room in exchange for some hash, she agreed. Somehow, the cops caught on, and she was arrested for receiving stolen property. She was a minor, only 16 years old, and the school informed Frank that if she voluntarily left, the charges would be dropped. Frank acquiesced and agreed. Nancy was irate, screaming at him. I didn't do anything wrong. How could you fuck over your own daughter? You bastard. I hate you. I hate your fucking guts. She was crushed after this and gave up on ever becoming a normal person. When Deborah said to her, You can go to school somewhere else. She replied, There's no point. I'm going to die before I'm 21. I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. Chapter 10. Pogoing Sid. Sid Vicious, though happy for his best friend, Johnny Rotten, was terribly disappointed it wasn't him who had been chosen as the singer of the Sex Pistols. He was the one who had told John to go there that day, and Malcolm had actually believed it was Sid he was auditioning. For Sid, it was an act of cruel fate. But the truth was, Johnny Rotten's sneering voice was a perfect match with Steve Jones's raucous guitar sound. Right from the beginning, there was a tone, a sound, an essence to them, a feeling of something new made by stripping rock and roll music down to its essentials and dousing it in anger and rebellion. The first rehearsals were difficult. Steve was just learning the guitar and found it challenging. But he loved music, had music in his soul, and was ready to dedicate himself. As he says, I couldn't play guitar. I fucking hated it. It was just fucking noise. But I stuck with it because it was all I had. Perhaps it was because they were self-taught. Perhaps it was the hooligan attitude. Johnny really just sneered and screamed and cackled instead of singing. But they created a whole new sound. It was a sound of anarchy and rebellion and anger, of hopelessness and violence. And it worked. All the pieces fit perfectly. 
As Steve said about their first show at St. John's Art School. We started playing and I looked over at John and thought, this is fucking fantastic. I love this. It was like one of those magical moments. Everything in the universe clicked. They covered lots of Iggy Pop songs like No Fun and Search and Destroy, also covering the hardest, toughest songs coming out of the 70s, like The Who's Substitute, Roadrunner by The Modern Lovers. They even covered The Monkees, turning their Neil Diamond-penned song Stepping Stone into something dark and dangerous, a song which would be covered by many punk bands throughout the ages, most famously by Minor Threat. But while they were covering classics, they played them hard and fast, turning them into punk songs, and Johnny would change the lyrics around, filling them with his dark, nihilistic sarcasm. So, while originally disappointed, Sid Vicious licked his wounds and soon got over it, and instead of being resentful, instead became the Sex Pistols' number one fan, going to every single show. The band was notorious from the start getting their picture in the papers for brawling on stage at the marquee. In actuality, someone had started shoving Vivian in the audience, and Steve had jumped in to break it up. But all the public saw was a photo of Steve pulling off his guitar with raised fists as he delved into the crowd. Then Steve famously said in their very first interview, We're not into music. We're into chaos. (laughs) In an early interview with Johnny Ryan, he made clear where the band stood in things. The interviewer asked, Who would you say is a good singer? And he replied, I wouldn't. I don't have any heroes. They're all useless. Don't accept the old order. Get rid of it. And why do people like your music? Because they're bored. People are bored of their brains. With hippies. What's this thing you've got against hippies? They're complacent. The Sex Pistols were attracting a lot of attention, whether it was good or bad press, and a lot of it was bad. Every show had more people, and the ones that showed up with long hair and bell-bottoms came back next time with their hair hacked, short, and spiky, wearing straight-leg pants and torn t-shirts. Record companies were beginning to hear about this new sound, punk rock, that was taking the kids by storm. And Malcolm McLaren was able to schmooze somebody and get the Sex Pistols signed to none other than EMI, England's biggest and most prestigious record label. Sid was there for all of it and became famous for his fashion. Spiked hair, all in black, a leather motorcycle jacket, chain and padlock around his neck. And also for a new form of dancing he invented, where he'd jump up and down bumping into everyone, a dance soon picked up by all the other punks called Pogoing. Chapter 11, Punk Rock Nancy. Nancy refused to speak to her father. She wrecked the family car. Her mother found syringes and a blackened spoon in her things. They tried to have her committed, but doctors couldn't find anything wrong with her. They said she was just having a tough time and needed to be loved. Nancy changed her look, going from flower child to rocker, trading in her bell-bottoms for skin-tight black pants and platform heels. She cut her hair and streaked it blonde, began wearing heavy makeup, and started hanging out at a Philadelphia rock club called The Hive. She started fraternizing with drug dealers, bringing strange men home, waking her parents in the middle of the night with loud sex. Deborah says, and I quote, More than once I fantasized that someone would kill her and put her and us out of our misery. Fuck, man. Nancy started attending big rock concerts where she learned to charm the roadies into bringing her backstage to meet the band. And many of the bands brought her back to their hotels for wild all-night parties. When Bad Company came to town, she slept with the whole band and ranked each member sexually. She partied with Queen, Kiss, The Who, The Allman Brothers. After sleeping with the entire band of Aerosmith, they said it might be fun to set her on fire and throw her out the hotel window. And she agreed. She said she always wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. But apparently the band backed down and chickened out. Sometimes she'd be brought back to her house in the morning in a limousine. 
One day, Deborah came home to find the band Pretty Things and all their roadies partying in her house. As Deborah says, We had lost her. We could not control her any longer. All we could do was try to save the other two children. So to get her out of their hair, they got her her own apartment in New York City. They rented a one-bedroom apartment on West 23rd Street and agreed to pay the rent for six months. She was 17. Punk rock was just in its nebulous stages at that time, but Nancy was attracted to it magnetically. She understood the basic tenets right away, how rock and roll had become this dinosaur, and punk was taking it to the basics and back to the people. As Nancy herself said, Punk is just real good basic rock and roll with really good riffs. It's not like boogie rock. It's not embellished with synthesizers. It's just real basic 50s and early 60s rock. Nancy started hanging out at Max's Kansas City and the legendary CBGBs. She saw the Ramones, Blondie, Television, all before anyone knew who these bands were. She wrote articles about the burgeoning movement for New York Rocker, a local Greenwich Village magazine, proudly sending the clippings of her writing back home. Nancy proclaimed Debbie Harry of Blondie was bound to one day become a superstar, and she was very right. She claimed they were good friends. How friendly Nancy and Debbie Harry actually were is unknown, but there are photographs of them hanging out together, drinking and smoking. She also claimed her and Joey Ramone were good friends. And when Nancy's parents came to visit her, Richard Hell of television was hanging out in Nancy's apartment. Nancy didn't adopt the punk look. There was none to adopt. It was brand new. She helped create it. She bleached her hair platinum white, setting it off by covering her eyes in black eyeshadow and painting her lips blood red, dressing only in black with fishnet stockings and wearing a tiny revolver from a chain around her neck. She was punk rock Nancy now and would be until the day she died. Chapter 12, Sex Pistol Sid. Sid Vicious wasn't the only diehard fan of the Sex Pistols making bold fashion statements. There was the Bromley Contingent, a group of crazy punkers with wild, wild looks like Susie Sue, Billy Broad, who'd later go on to be known as Billy Idol, Stephen Severin, Sue Catwoman, and Pamela Roque, who was then known as Jordan. They were very artistic and created amazing outfits and legendary looks. While the rubber clothing of Malcolm and Vivian's sex shop cost a fortune, they'd make their own out of garbage bags, or as they called them in England, bin liners. It's crazy when you see pictures of these slinky, cool, shiny black plastic dresses to think that they were actually made from garbage bags. It really showed their artistic ability and imagination. The final product was stunning, but it was also such a statement. There was a garbage strike going on and garbage bags littered the streets in huge mounds. There were no jobs to be had. There was no future for these kids. And here they were draped in garbage bags like so much trash on the street. But they turned it to their advantage and made something beautiful out of it. They really created the late 70s punk look of England. Susie Sue would wear spiky eyeliner on one eye that mimicked the look of Alex's false eyelashes in a clockwork orange, as well as risque outfits consisting of black lingerie that went beyond revealing, openly exposing her breasts. They wanted to shock and awe, to tear down the old ethics and morals. And in doing so, in a very questionable move to say the least, adopted the swastika as a look. Many of them would wear it, Sid very famously, but Johnny would and Susie and in particular Jordan, who would sometimes dress as an actual Nazi guard. They weren't racists, were good friends with many Black people, like legendary Don Letts, who was an inspiration to them. And they all loved reggae and ska music. It was like a sick joke, meant to freak out the bourgeoisie. Vivian decorated the clothes for sale at sex with pink swastikas and explained the Nazis despised the color pink, equated it with homosexuality, and would have been horrified to see a pink swastika, which delighted her. In the end, they just wanted to be shocking, which they were. 
When the band Queen canceled an appearance on the UK's Today Show and the Sex Pistols were brought in at the last minute as a substitute, many of the Bromley contingent were famously with them. The show hosted by an inebriated Bill Grundy, who introduces them by saying, They are a group called the Sex Pistols, and they are as drunk as me. Grundy then made a pass at the gorgeous Susie, prompting Steve Jones to call him a dirty sod. When pressed for more by the drunk Grundy, Steve unleashed, calling him a dirty bastard, a dirty old man, and a fucking rotter. All on live television. The press went wild with these shenanigans, publishing front page headlines the next day like the filth and the fury. And who are these punks? But while the Sex Pistols received overnight infamy over their foul language, the incident also got them banned from playing numerous venues because of the publicity, which deeply hurt the group as they were about to embark on a large tour of England with The Clash, The Heartbreakers, which was Johnny Thunders from the New York Dolls' new band, and The Damned, called The Anarchy in the UK Tour. Of the 21 places that were booked, 18 canceled, and the Sex Pistols only played three shows. Overnight, they'd become both famous and extremely hated, and unable to book a show. A counselor personally responsible for banning the Sex Pistols in his town said, quote, I think most of these groups will be vastly improved by sudden death. The worst currently are the Sex Pistols. They are the antithesis of humankind, and the whole world would be vastly improved by their utter non-existence. When later asked by a reporter, why all the infamous language, Johnny Rotten replied, Infamous language? You're joking. I speak nothing but the fucking English language. And if that's infamous, then ha, ha, ha. Sid, still eager to be in a punk band, had a half-hearted group called the Flowers of Romance, doing Ramones covers, practicing in the squat where Slit's member Palm Olive lived with her boyfriend Joe Strummer of The Clash. Sid even played saxophone with the ill-fated band. Then Malcolm decided to hold a two-day punk festival at the 100 Club, booking bands that would go on to be punk rock legends, like The Clash, The Buzzcocks, and The Damned. One of the Bromley contingent, Susie Sue, who was actually calling herself Candy Sue at the time, convinced him to book her new band, Susie and the Banshees. There was only one problem. The band didn't exist. Susie just thought it would be funny to get on stage and annoy people. But they quickly assembled a makeshift band, and Sid Vicious was put on drums. Sid pounded away on drums while Susie recited the Lord's Prayer for 20 minutes. It was also at this show that Sid was accused of throwing a beer mug at the stage, which hit a beam and shattered, showering the crowd with glass that hit one unfortunate girl in the eye. Not cool, but there's debate over whether or not Sid even threw the glass. Journalist Carolyn Kuhn says he was standing right next to her when it happened, and he definitely did not do it. Regardless, this and other events, like Sid hitting journalist Nick Kent with a rusty bike chain, cemented his reputation as Sid Vicious, though those that knew him said he couldn't fight his way out of a bag, and it was all just a big act to gain fame. The incident also got punk rock banned from the 100 Club another in the long list of places the Sex Pistols weren't allowed to play again. It was all taking a toll on the band. Johnny Rotten felt singled out as the rest of the band all knew each other. Rotten was constantly arguing with bassist Glenn Matlock. Matlock was by far the most talented musician in the band and wrote the music for many of the songs. But he didn't like Rotten's lyrics, especially the way he tried to rhyme anarchist with antichrist. Glenn also liked the Beatles, which Rotten despised and considered the antithesis to everything they were trying to do to their very spirit. Glenn was also always smiling and washing his socks, unlike the sneering, filthy Rotten. It all came to a head at the Paradisio Club in Amsterdam on January 7th, 1977. 
The band were forced to play outside of the UK because they were banned from nearly everywhere. Their drunken antics on the way to the flight, where, according to reporters, they were supposedly drunkenly vomiting and spitting, caused a panicked EMI to cancel their contract. Once in Holland, Rotten and Matlock were at each other's throats, and Malcolm, seeing anarchy and chaos as the key to success, just encouraged it all, and Matlock decided he'd had enough and quit the band. So Johnny Rotten, deciding he needed someone in the band who would be on his side of things and represent the spirit of this wild new thing they were doing, enlisted his best friend Spiky John, now known as Sid Vicious, to replace Matlock, even though Sid had no idea how to play the bass. Guitarist Steve Jones says, I regretted Glenn leaving because Sid couldn't play a fucking note. To his credit, Sid did earnestly try to learn the bass, practicing for hours, trying to play along to Ramon's records. He even asked his friend Lemmy, the iconic bass player from Motorhead, to teach him how to play. As Lemmy says, I tried to teach him how to play bass. Couldn't do it, though. No aptitude for it whatsoever. I said, that's it, Sid. You can't play bass. I'm sorry. He said, yeah, I know was all upset. But as an example of how earnest Sid Vicious was, he actually went to Glenn Matlock, the Beatles' loving bassist who he'd replaced, and asked him to give him lessons and teach him the songs. And Glenn, to his credit, did. Though he, too, like Lemmy, thought Sid was hopeless. But Sid Vicious was now a sex pistol, and just in time to sign their second record deal, this time with A&M. Getting canned by EMI, it appeared just like an amusing antidote to Malcolm McLaren and the band. They'd walked away with $40,000 when all was said and done and immediately had other offers. In the end, their time with EMI had not only been financially successful, but given Johnny Rotten fodder for a new song of contempt and hatred for the establishment. Chapter 13, Nauseating Nancy. Nancy soon found lucrative work in New York City. She became a topless dancer in Times Square strip clubs. As she herself says, In New York, I was dancing without any clothes on. And then you'd get tips for doing a little hand job for 10 bucks. They wanted to fuck. I just, you know, I just do it. There wasn't really anything to it. I just give good blowjobs. She'd also work in S&M back rooms as a dominatrix, where her punk look gave her an edge paddling successful businessmen and making them lick her boots. But with a steady source of easy money also came a steady stream of drugs. And it wasn't long before she became a hardcore heroin addict. When her parents came to visit her, they found her arms covered in track marks and Nancy nodding out so badly she was completely incoherent. When she wasn't stripping, shooting dope, or seeing bands... She was, of course, sleeping with all the punk rock stars she could. Iggy Pop says, I spent the night with her once. I liked her. There was something really spunky there. But I was a big boy then, so my thought was, trouble. Dee Dee Ramone's girlfriend, Connie, caught him cheating on her with Nancy. As he describes it, Nancy used to live on 23rd Street. Connie came there and found me in bed with Nancy. So Connie stabbed me because I was fucking Nancy. But Connie didn't give a shit. She just stole Nancy's collection of silver dollars and sold them to get some dope. Nancy was absolutely obsessed with the groundbreaking New York Dolls, one of the first bands to really define the punk ethic of being loud, fast, weird, and hedonistic. As Nancy herself says, The New York Dolls started the scene. They were the center of attention. Everything came after them. They were different. Nobody dressed the way they did or talked the way they did or played music the way they did. She claimed she slept with them all, besides Arthur Kane, but was deeply infatuated with drummer Jerry Nolan. So much so that when Nolan teamed up with fellow New York Dolls member Johnny Thunder and started a new band called the Heartbreakers and headed to the UK to tour with the Sex Pistols, she managed to scrape up the cash to jump on a plane and follow them. As an excuse, she found a beloved guitar which Jerry Nolan had been forced to hawk to a pawn shop. Nancy bought it and brought it along, 
claiming she had come to England to give it to him, even though he was a drummer and didn't really need a guitar. Chapter 14, Sid and Nancy. On March 9th, the Sex Pistols signed their contract with A&M for $150,000, doing so right in front of Buckingham Palace as a publicity stunt, then hauling ass away when the cops started circling the rowdy crew. They then began to drink themselves into oblivion, especially Sid, who polished off nearly an entire bottle of vodka. At a press conference after the signing, Sid started it by loudly farting and then insulting the press. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> when the press questioned the band about Rolling Stones guitarist Heath Richards, who'd recently been in the news for a drug bust, Sid screamed, I wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire. <laughs> Now completely out of control, the Motley crew piled into a limousine headed to the A&M offices. During the ride, Sid and drummer Paul Cook got into a fistfight, severely damaging the vehicle and resulting in Paul having a black eye. Steve then wrestled Sid down, twisted his legs behind him, and tore off his shoes, throwing them out of the window. When the limousine arrived and Sid stepped out, barefoot now, he immediately stepped on a broken piece of glass gashed his foot open. Once inside the EMI offices, Johnny Rotten threw a glass of wine in Sid's face. Then Sid went into the bathroom to wash his cut foot and somehow managed to break the toilet and flood the place. Meanwhile, smooth-talking Steve had wooed his secretary with his newfound rock star status and was off with her in another bathroom getting intimate. It was utter debauchery and pandemonium. The limousine driver refused to put them back in his car. And the antics continued. At some point, Johnny Rotten got busted for some speed. Then Sid and Ja Wobble ended up at the Speakeasy Pub in Piccadilly, a place famous for rock star celebrities where Sid was drunkenly interviewed, saying, I can die when I'm 24, I expect, if not sooner. A&M was utterly horrified by it all, and they too canceled their contract even faster than EMI had done. While the band did make $75,000 from A&M, plus the $40,000 from EMI for doing basically nothing, which had Investors Review newspaper declare them Young Businessmen of the Year, McLaren was quite upset. The Queen's Silver Jubilee was coming up, a huge event celebrating the Queen with parades and festivities, and they'd planned on releasing the single God Save the Queen at the same time. Now, desperate, McLaren started frantically looking for a record company to release the song before the Jubilee. And it was around this time that a new person showed up on the London punk scene, a girl from Philadelphia who'd been entrenched in the New York City punk scene, hung out at CBGB's in Max's Kansas City, and was supposedly good friends with Debbie Harry from Blondie. As Malcolm McLaren describes it, One Saturday morning, an American girl appeared, a chemical blonde whose stiff, brittle hair ranged in color from white to cadmium yellow to the black of her roots. She was an odd thing to look at. She wasn't plump, but swollen. The eruptions across her skin were covered in a thick, chalky makeup, and her lips were painted blood red. She was wearing the ubiquitous New York rock chick uniform, leather jacket, short skirt and boots. She came straight up to the counter and dumped her bag between her feet and said, I'm looking for Jerry. Is he around? You know, Jerry Nolan, the drummer in the Heartbreakers. He used to be with the New York Dolls. He said he was a friend of you guys. Which one of you is Malcolm? She continued with a dull confidence and instant familiarity that only Americans seemed to possess. Her voice was cigarette stained. I got in from New York this morning. Jerry said he'd meet me here. He said this was his hangout. She'd come directly to the shop from the airport. This American was Nancy Spongen. And then on Monday, March 21st, 1977, Sid Vicious played his first show with the Sex Pistols at Notre Dame Hall. Unfortunately, because of their newfound infamy, the priests in charge of Notre Dame Hall would only let in a small amount of people, fearful of a riot. But while there were few in attendance, with hundreds of angry punks locked outside, surprise, surprise, all the practicing paid off. 
Sid Vicious could actually play the bass. While he was no virtuoso or melodic songmaker like his predecessor, he was surprisingly adequate, to say the least. But his swagger, his attitude, did wonders, pumping the band up, getting them going. Unlike Matlock, who played skillfully with his fingers, plucking the strings, giving a full melodic range, inspired by Paul McCartney, Sid played with a pick, pounding mostly on the E string. It was simple, stripped down, straightforward, what punk is supposed to be, and gave a dark layer over which Steve could rip his Johnny Thunders-inspired guitar riffs. And furthermore, without being encumbered by Glenn's fancy bass lines, the band played faster and harder. Both Paul Cook and Steve Jones would later say that the first shows with Sid on bass were definitely their best shows ever. And in the crowd at the show that night was the new girl from Philadelphia. Nancy was impressed, quite taken by the Sex Pistols, and smitten as well, and shunned by the Heartbreakers, set herself a new target. Chris Needs, purveyor of one of the very first punk magazines, Sniffing Glue, says, One night we were sitting about in the front bar of the speakeasy. Me, Mick Jones, Joe Strummer, Sid Vicious and Paul Cook. There was this girl tottering about in a back leather miniskirt and fishnets, trying to bomb cigarettes and talk to us. She was obviously up for anything, especially if it led to drugs. She was said to have had her sights fixed on Johnny Rotten, but Rotten hated her. So she saw Sid there and made straight for him and was all over him. And that was it. Sid was a little bit innocent and gullible, and she just blew him off his feet. And so began a love affair for the ages that would end in tragedy and the death of both Sid and Nancy within two short years. And with that, the meeting of Sid and Nancy, we're going to end part one. But be sure to join us next week as we get into the murder of Nancy Spungen, the myths and the facts, and try to sort out who really killed Nancy. Crazy, crazy story. Can't wait to uh, hypothesize and theorize once we get into next episode's details. We get all into it. We got examining the crime scene photos and police reports and everything else. Good stuff. Good stuff. Tune in. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. And hey, you know we want to hear from you. You got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? You just want to say hi? Drop us a line at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com that's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com bye for now